Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Cal Thomas has been covering Washington for nearly 50 years through his nationally syndicated columns, several books, and his frequent television appearances. He's our guest this week for an hour-long conversation that recaps the political events he's witnessed and the presidents and lawmakers he's covered, which are all summed up in his new book, A Watchman in the Night. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Cal Thomas, next year is going to mark the 40th anniversary of your nationally syndicated column. What have been your goals over the years with it? Well, Susan, I think the goal has been to show that a standard exists in many areas of life. Economic standards, uh, government standards, the Constitution, moral standards that have always worked for every generation that has tried them. And by violating them, we have put ourselves in massive debt, uh, a weakened foreign policy, in my judgment, uh, leadership that now uh, no longer enjoys the respect of large numbers of Americans. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. So what I've tried to do with my column over the years is to assert a standard that has worked in the past, and we don't live in the past, but we can learn from the past, and to suggest that uh, this is the way to go for a more healthy and balanced future for individuals, for their families, and for the nation. One of the many things that has changed dramatically over the past four decades is the business that we're both in. Mm. I'm wondering what you think the role and future of syndicated columns are. Probably not very good with newspapers closing. At the height of my column, I was in over 500 newspapers, and now so many are closing down or they are uh, uh, getting rid of material content and going up on prices, which seems to be uh, rather crazy to me. I like to say that USA Today now, you can see the weather page from the front page. It's so thin. I think, uh, you know, it's the only profession mentioned in the Constitution, the First Amendment. The founders, even though George Washington called them infamous scribblers, uh, knew that a healthy and free press was essential to a strong democracy. And Gallup has shown in recent polling that trust in the media, all of it, is at a record low or near a record low down or along the lines of Congress. And I think that's very dangerous for the healthy democracy. Young people are not reading newspapers. They're getting their information on social media and from friends and other sources. And I think that's uh, that's not good. It's not good for them and it's not good for the future of the country. Well, just picking up on that theme, you know, in the, in the polls with young people, every institution, yeah. churches, whatever, all have dropped precipitously uh, in their estimation of having trust in them. What's going on, do you think? Well, I think there, uh, you know, you mentioned churches. People look at the uh, TV evangelism scandals and some of the other things going on on the various denominations. Uh, they see uh, it, uh, faith is not relevant to their lives in many cases. Another Gallup poll showed 20% uh, of Generation Z uh, say none when asked for their religious affiliation. You look at uh, the political parties that increasingly seem to pander to the extremes, both right and left. Kristen Sinema brought this up recently, independent now senator from Arizona, when she appeared on Face the Nation. Uh, she was asked by the, uh, the host, Margaret Brennan, uh, well, how come you didn't go to the Republican Party after leaving the Democratic Party? She said, I don't want to go from one broken party to another. So I think there's a lot of cynicism out there about the two political parties that no matter who gets elected, the problems never get fixed. We have a debt of over $31 trillion. And uh, the Democrats say you can't cut a dime. And the Republicans come up with a plan to cut just $4 trillion plus. 
and yet uh, the Democrats won't budge on it. People look at this and they say, you know, that's not how things work in my life. That's not how things work in my business. But government has become so dysfunctional now because it's all about getting reelected and raising money. It's not about actually solving problems because once you solve a problem, you no longer have the issue. Staying with religion for just a second, you define yourself as both a Christian and a conservative. Mm -hmm. On the Christian front, I'm wondering what you think the role of Christianity is in the public sphere today in an increasingly secular and multi-ethnic society. Well, that's been an ongoing question, really, since the rise of the so-called religious right in the 80s, but it precedes that as well. Uh, when King David was king over Israel, he had one of the greatest political statements ever. He said, put not your trust in princes and kings or in mortal flesh that cannot save. Uh, so I think there is a role for the universal church to assert right and wrong, good and bad, uh, good and evil. I think of uh, people like the late uh, Roman Catholic Bishop Fulton J. Sheen, who said, among other things, America is not uh, overrun with intolerance or the bigoted, it's overrun by tolerance. We now tolerate everything. And if you say anything is wrong, any lifestyle, any behavioral choice, then you're branded a bigot or one of many phobes. So I think uh, the church and, and preachers in the past, certainly the end of slavery, certainly the abolitionist movement, uh, the church was much behind that, at least in the North, not so much in the South. Uh, so it does have a moral role that I think impacts our political life. Define your brand of conservatism. <laughs> well, uh, conserve means to preserve, I think. And I, I think there are certain rules that always work, living within your means as an individual and living in, within our means as a government. Don't spend more than you take in. Don't get in debt. Get married before you have kids. Stay in school, study hard. Uh, be honest in your personal and business relationships. These are values and virtues that have always worked when applied by individuals and nations. But we seem to be getting away from that now. Everybody has their own truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. And even if they contradict each other, the only thing that matters is that each of us feels good. Well, how's that working out? Primary goal of Christian conservatives over the past 40 years has been the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Mm. What are you thinking about the impact of the Dobbs decision so far on society? Well, I've always said that uh, abortion is not the cause of our decadence, it's a reflection of it. And we see challenges to human life in the streets of Chicago and New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Houston and other major cities. Life is so cheap now, people shooting each other, people pushing people on uh, subway tracks, um, all kinds of terrible things. So I think all of these are interrelated. Uh, I think the pregnancy help centers, at which I've spoken for many years around the country, are doing a tremendous job, and I think that uh, their role will increase in the years to come. Uh, most women I've spoken with who have had abortions and regret them say if they had had information about alternatives, if they'd seen a sonogram, if they knew about these help centers, if they had a place to live after they'd been thrown out of their house, uh, then they would have made a different decision. So I think the momentum is on the side of the pro-lifers. Uh, but we have to uh, continue to demonstrate our compassion for women and for the babies after they're born. Analyze it politically. What do you see as the impacts, particularly going into 2024? Well, it's been a winning issue uh, depending on uh, who you are and what you're uh, uh, running on. Certainly in some states, more liberal states like uh, Minnesota, for example, it's a challenge. But George W. Bush uh, ran as a pro-life president. Uh, even Donald Trump uh, ran as a pro-lifer after being for years a supporter of Planned Parenthood and named three Supreme Court justices who were on the side of the Dobbs decision and overturning Roe. 
so I think it's uh, going to be a continuing debate. Uh, the Democrats, uh, and especially the left, want it to, to be a top issue in the coming elections and future elections, but I'm not sure it's playing all that well. I think uh, people are starting to realize the corrosive effect of uh, doing away with 60 million babies in this country. That's a lot. Tell me about your new book. It's titled A Watchman in the Night. I picked this uh, from a verse in the Old Testament when the ancient Israelites put a watchman on the wall after the city gates closed to look out for invading armies and other bad guys wanting to uh, come in and burglarize uh, the Jewish people. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an analogy of uh, standing and looking for threats to the United States and to us as individuals from the outside. And I think we're seeing a lot of that, not only from uh, the obvious ones with threats from China and Russia and Iran and terrorist groups and, and whoever's coming across the southern border, uh, but in our personal lives. Uh, we don't, uh, we don't uh, model the kind of traditional values as they used to be called uh, anymore. You tune, on, tune in the media and uh, you see all kinds of uh, what I would regard as terrible things. I guess I'm viewed as a dinosaur by some people. Dinosaurs are extinct, I hope I'm not yet, but I think certain values go on and on, and I've tried to write about those and call people back to those values because they actually do work. One of the <clears throat> themes that you return to again and again in the book is the liberal media bias. Mm. I'm wondering, again, we talked about how this business that we're both in has changed, but one of the big changes has been the rise of conservative voices, talk radio, Fox News, Fox's competitors, mm. uh, obviously social media, blogs, et cetera. So uh, is it as much of a concern as, as it was 20, 30 years ago? Well, I've seen uh, this and I don't like what's happening because people tune in now only to those things that reinforce what they already believe. You mentioned Fox, MSNBC, uh, if those are the two extremes, right and left. You got CNN, which is kind of quasi in the middle, back and forth. Uh, and when I was growing up and starting out as a copy boy at NBC News here in Washington, we had real journalists coming over from uh, newspapers and wire services who wrote all their own stuff. Probably most, if not all, were Democrats, but they were really fair. David Brinkley uh, once said, it's impossible to be objective, so we must try to be fair. I think that's a wonderful standard for journalism. But so many people now see the media as, uh, uh, as opinion. Uh, there are opinion pages on, uh, in the newspapers, but now it looks like all of it is opinion. Uh, a friend of mine, a talk show host named Chris Plant says, the great power that the media have is the power to ignore the stories they don't cover. They start with a narrative uh, and it comes from their political worldview and then they shape that narrative uh, to report on stories that uh, are really not the entire story. Your book is constructed to go through year by year, 1984 to the present. And we're gonna do a little of the same. We also have some clips, I'm gonna warn you, some of them, uh -oh. one from each decade, just uh, <laughs> look back over time. But before we get into that, you've dedicated this book to the memory of your daughter. Will you tell me about her? Oh my, well, uh, Carrie uh, was uh, probably more like me than any of my kids. Uh, her personality, she was a sweetheart. Uh, and uh, I loved her a lot. She passed away uh, from a brain tumor, uh, had a long struggle with it, had a lot of other difficult uh, relational problems in her life, but uh, I wanted to dedicate it to her because I miss her every day, but I know I'll see her again, so that's always a great comfort. She followed you into journalism, did she? Yeah, she worked for the Washington Examiner for a while and then Town Hall, and then um, her malady got uh, too severe and wasn't able to do it anymore. And, uh, we uh, 
moved, moved her into our house and uh, that was a special time just to be with her every day like, like we were when she was a, a child. Well, while we're talking about sadness in your family, I also want to have you have, have a happy note because in the book, you tell us about a happy circumstance. Your wife of many years passed away, mm -hmm. but um, I'm going to be a little sentimental here. You've got a new uh, relationship in your life that's a really old relationship at the same time. My uh, wonderful wife, uh, Christy Jean, who owns a fabulous restaurant in Key Largo, Florida, keeps me in food. We were high school classmates. We both worked at the same radio station when we were 16 years old. She was uh, the prettiest girl in school, still is, and was squiring around celebrities. And I was on the air as a disc jockey at uh, the age of 16. And uh, we kept up at reunions and other things over the years. And uh, both of our longtime spouses passed away within a couple of months of each other. And uh, one thing led to another and we reconnected. And uh, I tell people, I feel like I'm 17 again if I only had the body. <laughs> and you're living mostly in Florida? Then yes, living in, uh, in Miami and uh, no tax state. Thank you, Ron DeSantis. And I felt like I got a pay raise the minute I w moved there. <laughs> so into the chronology of the book, mm. it begins in 1984 when your column began, uh, halfway through Ronald Reagan's term. Mm. Uh, when Ronald Reagan died in 2004, you wrote, few presidents in modern times have so dominated or changed a world. Mm. So 40 years on, what's his legacy been? Well, of course, the uh, coming down of the Berlin Wall, which which came down under George Bush 41, but the seeds were sown in the Reagan administration when he stood up to uh, uh, the Soviet Union, Gorbachev. Uh, you may recall, and I think it was 1983, he put uh, Pershing missiles in Eastern Europe to counter the Soviet buildup there, and the American left was screaming that he was going to create World War III, and instead he, he uh, caused the Soviets to back down, and that began the process that has opened up Eastern Europe and given them freedom unlike they have anything they've seen for decades. So I think that is a lasting uh, legacy. Um, you know, he raised taxes, but he lowered taxes. He named Sandra Day, Day O'Connor to the Supreme Court, the first woman on the court, which is uh, a good thing. But, uh, you know, she voted to uh, uphold Roe versus Wade and and some people warned that uh, her record was kind of spotty. Gee, where have we, where have we heard that before? But uh, I think uh, he was one of the few presidents I've met, and I've met everyone since JFK, uh, that the presidency didn't change him. He knew who he was before he came to office, and he left the same afterwards. And he was probably the most optimistic president of all the ones that I've, uh, I've met. Just an incredible personality, a wonderful human being. I had lunch with him once in the White House. I remember he said, uh, well, you know, uh, People think this job is all powerful, but I'll frequently give an order and see it frustrated three or four levels down. That was before the swamp name came to prominence. <laughs> so uh, the government grew under Ronald Reagan, yes. and he came into office wanting to cut the size of government. How do you process that? Well, Reagan used to say that uh, the only proof of eternal life in Washington is a government program. And uh, I added that uh, it's easier to kill a vampire than a government program. And the analogy, I think, is a good one because both suck the lifeblood out of their hosts. Uh, it, you know, he tried to eliminate the Department of Education, which in my view and his view too was uh, really not doing anything to educate young people. It was just another uh, bureaucratic office uh, promised by Jimmy Carter to the teachers unions in uh, 1976 if, he, if they would support him. Uh, but he was unable to do it because Congress uh, you know, wouldn't do it. It's almost impossible to cut anything. Even the rate of spending increases in this town, not a real cut. This is why I love Citizens Against Government Waste. They put out this annual pig book 
and they go from A to Z in government agencies, and all of the waste from snail darters to uh, studying uh, whales and all these other things that really are unconstitutional, frankly. Uh, and then, of course, they say nothing can be cut at all. So, but I do think that Reagan had a lasting le legacy, especially his optimism about the future of the country, even in his last letter to the American people when he was diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer's, said the best days of America are ahead. We need to hear more of that. Well, two other issues from Re uh, President Reagan's legacy. In 1986, he signed a major immigration bill, I think it was Simpson-Mazzoli yes. it was called. It was a watershed in U.S. immigration policy. This week, we are facing the uh, real tidal wave of immigration mm -hmm. after the COVID regulations go down. Mm -hmm. How do you think that legislation got us to where we are today, and what are you thinking about how we handle immigration? Well, first, uh, as Alan Simpson, the uh, senator from Wyoming, told me, the problem with that legislation is that it did not have a secure identifier. Uh, it did not have a, uh, a requirement that uh, uh, businesses not hire illegals. And it was something like the uh, Jim Wright uh, versus Bush 41 promise, when Jim Wright promised to cut spending if Bush 41 would raise taxes. Well, Bush 41 raised the taxes, but he never got the spending cuts. So I, I think this is a continuing scenario in Washington where things never change, they only get worse. And uh, there are laws already on the books about immigration, about orderly uh, entry into the country, about legal entry, and they're not being enforced. And that's, that's the big frustration for me. We cannot handle these hundreds of thousands and maybe millions now of people coming into the country. As I wrote in a previous book, one of the characteristics of the decline of nations is uncontrolled immigration without assimilation. We are becoming hyphenated Americans, tribal Americans. Instead of out of many, one, our national motto, we're becoming out of one, many. And uh, there are people who uh, actually uh, don't love this country, at least the way it is, and want to change it. And this is one of the ways they're planning to do it. Recall President Obama says, uh, said we want to fundamentally transform America. And President Biden has said the same thing. Well, from what to what? The America I received from my parents and grandparents looked pretty good to me. One last question on the Reagan legacy, and that was an era of being tough on crime. Mm. And you write in the book that your views have evolved in this area. How so? Well, he wasn't the first, of course. Nixon made a big uh, deal out of crime in his uh, 1968 uh, run for president. It's always been a problem. And I think uh, when you don't enforce the law, you send a signal to the lawless that what they're doing is okay. You look what's happening in New York City with Alvin Bragg and uh, reducing felonies to misdemeanors, letting people back out on the street to commit new crimes. Uh, you just can't do this. If, if criminals know that they can get away with things, then they're going to get away with things. Uh, and I think uh, a lack of respect for the law goes along with the other things we've been talking about, a decline in the respect and trust in the media and all institutions. You mentioned the church and government and everything. I think it's not just one thing, it's everything. And we need the kind of leadership, in my judgment, uh, in this country who will uh, return to basic rule of law who will restore integrity and faith in some of our institutions. Because if we don't have faith in them, where are we gonna go? What nation are we going to go to? If it's not America, where? If it's not us, who? Sound like a campaign speech. <laughs> but did I misread you? Because my takeaway from what you wrote is that you began to believe that it, that nonviolent misdemeanors yes, okay. uh, should not be incarcerated. Right. The prison population was growing yeah. too much. Is, yeah. is that correct? Yes, that is. And I'll tell you why. There's a 
there's an Old Testament uh, uh, requirement of paying back people you have wronged. It's called restitution. So if I steal your TV set and I go to jail for it, uh, sure, you may have insurance to get it back, but what does that do to the relationship between you and me and your property? Uh, very little. If you force somebody to pay back double or triple what they have done to injure you through your stealing of your TV set or whatever it may be, then you have a, uh, a, a moral element involved in this that you don't have uh, when you just lock somebody up. And you know, remember that great line from the Shawshank Redemption where, uh, uh, where uh, the uh, Tom Hanks character is uh, saying to Red, uh, you know, I was an honest man on the outside. I had to come in here to learn to be a criminal. We're gonna move into the late 80s, the election of George H.W. Bush. And uh, first of all, what do you think overall of his presidency? Well, I knew him for many years. He was my congressman when I lived in Houston and worked at a television station there. I think the, uh, the Bush family is, uh, uh, is a wonderful family. Uh, I've known many of them, uh, 41, 43. Uh, met some of the others, Jeb, when he was governor of Florida. Had lunch with him recently. And they're people of uh, great integrity and they love this country and they believe in the values that build and have sustained it. But I think we've moved on, unfortunately, from that kind of thing. Now we're just shouting at each other across the political divide. You look at uh, television, which uh, enhances this sort of thing. And you've got a host and two guests, and one guest says, you're ruining America. And the other guest said, no, you're ruining America. Well, you're a commie. Well, you're a secular humanist. Well, you're a Bible-thumping bigot. And the host says, and we'll be back with more civil discussion after these messages. Real people don't behave like that. And uh, so we've got you know the extremes now, and they're the ones who win the primaries, and people are increasingly frustrated. That's why independents are uh, the most rapidly growing party, if you want to call it a party, right now. First clip, this is from 1989, and it is about the collapse of the Soviet Union. You talked about how important that was and that President Reagan set the stage. Let's listen to what you had to say about it back then. I just got through uh, doing a column uh, for my papers this week on uh, while Secretary Baker is uh, trying to form a unanimity of at least a, opinion on the outside in terms of our approach to the Soviet Union. His own State Department has just released about 60, 90 days ago uh, a report on the continuation of the disinformation and front groups and infiltration and forgery letters that are being used not only by the Soviets, but Soviet bloc countries to uh, oppose American policy and to try to uh, weaken support for the United States government, even within our own country. Ooh, well, I grew the mustache to make me look older and more mature, and it worked. It was also before my hair transplant, but that's another issue. Well, it's a great voice. Um, so what did we, you... <laughs> we picked that because of the disinformation, uh, uh, something yeah. that became, has continued to be a theme. This was in the pre-internet days, yeah. and you were railing about Soviet disinformation, mm -hmm. now Russian disinformation in American politics. Mm -hmm. How do we counteract it? Well, we have uh, disinformation in America. We don't have to import it from other countries. So I think people have to be careful where they get their news sources, especially now that uh, we're faced with uh, AI and where people can create anything they can. A friend of mine uh, who has a podcast decided to create himself on AI, and he said the voice was incredibly like his. He almost couldn't tell the difference. And this, you know, Elon Musk has warned about this, and others have as well. So if you, 
I think our threats now are, uh, are less from Russian and Chinese different disinformation than they are from disinformation within our own country. You have to do your due diligence on this stuff. You know, democracy, a constitutional republic is not the modern, is not the natural state of the world. If it were, more people would embrace it. Uh, you have totalitarianism, you have uh, religious fundamentalism, denial of women's rights all over the world. And so we need to work at this. You can't, you can't get in shape by watching an exercise video. You've got to go to the gym. And you can't maintain a, a constitutional republic just by voting every couple or four years. You've got to be engaged every day. How should we think about the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, in light of Putin's incursion into Ukraine? Well, I was standing on the White House lawn when uh, Jimmy Carter, Menachem Begin, and Anwar Sadat signed the peace agreement. And there was somebody standing next to me who said, isn't this wonderful? Peace is finally broken out. And I said, with the deep cynicism that comes with being in this business, there will always be other enemies. And so there are. Uh, one thing collapses, another rises. One dictator dies, another goes up. And so I think there's always been evil in the world since the Garden of Eden. And we have to stand against it and fight against it and uh, resist it. Uh, there's a verse uh, in scripture that says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I think that works in theological terms and it also works uh, among foreign policy and, and other areas. When you mentioned Menachem Begin, let me divert from the 19, late 80s to today. Mm -hmm. uh, Israel is, uh, is celebrating its 75th anniversary as a country. At the same time, massive protests on the street mm -hmm. about uh, the proposed changes to the judicial system. What do you see from afar about what's going on there? Well, I just got back from my 27th visit uh, to Israel. Had another. Now, now, why do you go so often? I just love the country. I've known uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu since he was deputy chief of mission here at the Israeli embassy in Washington, he's been an old friend. I read his autobiography called Bibi, and he deals quite uh, on many pages about the uh, need for judicial reform in Israel and how uh, the judiciary and the uh, left-wing media in Israel have been after him for years. They can't defeat him at the polls. This is his third time around. I told him, I said, you know, Jesus only promised a second coming, and this is your third coming. He liked that. Uh, but I, I think he's been a very effective leader. And he, you know, you'll remember that speech he gave at the UN where he had the chart of that drawing of a bomb and, and Iran's progress. He told me that uh, we have only been able to, we being Israel and himself, been only able to delay the bomb uh, that, that Iran will get, but somebody's gonna have to stop them. Now, who's that going to be? Uh, certainly not under this administration, which continues to pressure Israel to, uh, embrace the so-called two-state solution. Uh, so I think it's going to have to be Israel. He's, you know, I think they've been doing some things that a lot of the world doesn't know, but somebody's going to have to do it because Iran has said they want to obliterate Israel. They think they have a direct order from their God to do so and then to come after us. That's pretty hard to counter. You describe it as the so-called two-state solution. Yeah. What is the answer to the Palestinian situation? Well, first of all, you have to look at the history. The Palestinians are people who came from Jordan. Remember Black September when uh, the first King Hussein threw out uh, Yasser Arafat and the rest of them for trying to bring him down to stage a coup. And so Arafat created this Palestinian group of people and put a bunch of them in Lebanon and then called in the cameras to show them, quote, suffering, unquote. None of the Arab nations would help them. Uh, Arafat certainly wouldn't help them. Uh, the UN wouldn't help them, really. 
uh, get out of their circumstances. So I, I think the answer is, uh, in my view, and Caroline Glick, uh, who used to write for the Jerusalem Post and now is a, a podcaster, I met with her over there again too, uh, has said that uh, the answer is just to declare uh, no two-state solution, absorb the Palestinians, and, uh, and move on. They're not going to get another state because just as in Gaza, which I wrote about as well, if they gave up Gaza without any kind of reciprocity, there are going to be missiles in there and terrorist bases, and so there were. I mean, you have to listen to what they say. They say that they, they being the Islamic extremists, they want to destroy Israel, kill the Jewish people, and take over all the land. I mean, I, I, I think you have to take them at their word, given their behavior. Last question about George H.W. Bush, mm. Bush 41 president. Mm. Uh, you write about this, and he even spoke about it, the vision thing for a president, mm. uh, and the criticism that he didn't have one. How important is that, really? Well, I think it's extremely important. You know, going back to scripture again, it says, without a vision, the people perish. People want to know where they're being led, whether it's in warfare or in politics. You have to have people in your government who say, this is where I want to take our country, and this is why I want to take it there, and this is why it's going to benefit you and the entire country if I am able to take it there. That's what people want to hear. They're tired of all of this, at least I am. I think a lot of other people too. Uh, as soon as we get a majority, we're gonna investigate you. And oh yeah, well, when we get a majority back, we're gonna investigate you. Well, we're gonna indict your relatives. Well, we're gonna indict your relatives. We're gonna hold hearings to show how corrupt you are. How does that help any American? How does that produce jobs? How does that produce a better education, especially for inner city and poor children? It doesn't do anything. It raises money for the extremes. It raises money for ads on TV but it doesn't really promote the general welfare, provide for the common defense, or ensure domestic tranquility. Wish I'd written that. <laughs> In our last presidential election, did the two candidates each successfully outline their vision for the country? No, and that was what, that's one of the reasons that I think people are so frustrated. I mean, you get all of this stuff uh, from one side, you know, don't, let, don't elect Trump because he's a really bad man. Well, don't elect Biden because he's an even worse man. And how is that helping anybody? I want to hear what their vision is for the country. Again, about the debt, about uncontrolled uh, immigration, about uh, crime, uh, so many of these other things that are real issues. We need to solve Social Security and Medicare. Everybody knows it's going to run out of money. Social Security will in 10 years. But if politicians solve a problem, they no longer have the issue and they'd rather have the issue than to solve the problem. That's the dirty little secret of this town. I'll tell you a quick story about my late friend, George McGovern, the uh, 1972 Democratic presidential candidate uh, who'd come back from World War II and done nothing other than public service. So when he lost in the Reagan landslide of 1980, along with four other Democratic senators, he decided to do something different. He went up to uh, Connecticut and bought an inn, tried to run it. Well, it soon went out of business. A Wall Street Journal reporter called him up and said, wanted to know what happened. And then the only thing you need to know about what happens to people who stay too long in office in this town, George McGovern said, gee, if I knew how difficult it was to run a business, I might have voted differently in the Senate. That's all you need to know. When they stay too long, they get used to the environment and all the perks that go with it. Patrick Leahy once said, uh, I've been in this town 40 years. Yeah, that's the problem. You mentioned George McGovern as a longtime friend. Yeah. In the book, you also write about Senator Ted Kennedy and mm -hmm. say he was a very good friend of 25 years. Mm -hmm. Do those kinds of relationships still happen in this town today? No, when I uh, was young, uh, there were mostly women who threw these 
wonderful parties and they would invite people, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, sports figures, judges, and they'd eat over the shrimp bowl and get to know each other. Uh, if you, there's a great video on YouTube of uh, Reagan paying tribute to Speaker Tip O'Neill at an event, a St. Patrick's Day event in uh, Boston, I think it was 1987. And he's kidding him and they're laughing and he's calling O'Neill a great patriot and a dear friend. You don't have any of that today. The story was, you know, they'd argue during the day over issues, and then O'Neill would come over to the White House at night. They'd have a couple of drinks together, and they'd work things out, two Irishmen with uh, similar backgrounds. Uh, you just don't have that today. With the cell phones, if you go out to dinner with a member of the other party, somebody will take a picture and use it against you in the next campaign. And it's very sad. It really is. It's not the Washington I grew up with. We are uh, more than halfway through our hour with Cal Thomas about his new book, A Watchman in the Night, and almost the 40th anniversary of his syndicated column. We're into the 1990s, the era of Bill Clinton. You are critical of both Bill and Hillary Clinton throughout the book. Why? Well, I think they used each other, frankly, to uh, get to the top. You know, you remember that uh, famous 60 Minutes interview uh, when he was uh, first a candidate in which Hillary said that uh, I'm not uh, any stay-at-home, Tammy Wynette, stand-by-your-man kind of uh, person. She knew that he had been unfaithful while he was governor of uh, Arkansas, but they had made a deal with each other, a little like uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Uh, it was said that Fred Astaire gave Ginger Rogers class and she gave him sex. Well, Hillary gave Bill cover because she didn't uh, you know, walk out on him and uh, I would say that he used her to uh, uh, get to the White House. I mean, he had a great personality, just like uh, uh, Barack Obama. I mean, I met both of them. I, I think uh, you know, I could have dinner with him and we could laugh and we could tell jokes and do other things. And that's one of the key gifts, I think, of a politician. But, and by the way, uh, Clinton was the last president to actually have a balanced budget. Most people don't know that, uh, which was pretty amazing. And he engaged with Newt Gingrich, then the Speaker of the House, and the welfare reform, which was a tremendous thing. The left screamed and yelled that people would starve in the streets. They didn't. They got jobs. They got off welfare, which had become a drug for them. So that kind of stuff has disappeared as well. Now, Kevin McCarthy wants to talk to President Biden about, uh, you know, the debt limit and other things. And uh, uh, this is what's needed, whether they're going to have an honest conversation and actually produce results. We'll soon know. Well, it took a government shutdown for them to reach the agreement on the debt. The debt you know, that thing, this has been going on for years, the threat of a government shutdown. The government's not going to shut down. You know, the cameras go out to the national parks and they put up a closed sign and they'll find somebody who, who didn't get a certain kind of government check. Uh, it's, it's all kabuki theater. It's all meaningless. It's all a bad rerun that we've seen over and over and over again. So when Newt Gingrich uh, helped to engineer the Republican takeover of the House for the first time in 40 years during the Clinton administration, you said that later on when you talked with Gingrich, he admitted that they squandered the opportunity. How so? Well, uh, they, you know, the Republicans are always embarrassed when they get power. The Democrats use power. There's only one reason to get it, and that's to use it. But the Republicans uh, read the New York Times, the Washington Post, the editorial writers, the columnists and everything, who are always beating up on them. And uh, they, they cower in fear. Instead, they ought to just cancel their subscriptions, turn off their TVs, and do what they were elected to do. 
And I think that, uh, you know, Newt uh, uh, had a plan for Republican majority in the House, and it worked. But then they had this retreat. I know Rush Limbaugh talked about this. He, uh, he was asked to speak on that retreat, and he was encouraging them to go for it now. You've got the power. Go for it. Cut the taxes. Reduce the size of government. Uh, commit yourself to more freedom, individual liberty, and all of those other things that the Constitution stands for. But I think some Republicans, not all of them, but enough, were reluctant to do it because, again, they read the criticism and they were afraid of being called racists and various kinds of phobes and intolerant and bigoted and all these other things. So right now, are you cheering on the standoff over the debt limit? <laughs> no, I don't. I, again, it's all political theater. I've seen it so many times before. And there is no debt limit if they keep raising it. I mean, what is the point of having a debt limit if you're going to raise it every time it comes up? The government isn't suffering from too little money. You know, once again, Ronald Reagan says we have a debt, not because the American people are taxed too little, but because their government spends too much. That's the issue. If, I mean, if you, if you get a credit card bill in the mail and you, you, you've kind of gone wild in shopping and restaurants and, and you bought a bunch of stuff that you really can't afford, uh, uh, what do you do? Do you go borrow money and then keep spending? You don't, I hope. I don't, but the government does. And that's why, you know, the interest on the debt is greater than the GDP of many nations. We can't go on like this, but who's going to say stop? Next clip is from 1998, and uh, this is you talking about Ken Starr's Whitewater investigation. Let's watch this. Mm. Out here, this viewer writes, we're hearing that we have spent $40 million in four years tearing the state of Arkansas pillar to post to determine whether or not Bill Clinton knew that David Hale, the president of the local company, was making a $300,000 loan to Jim McDougal, the president of the local savings and loan. Well, again, um, as Judge Starr has said, if people were more forthcoming with evidence, with records, uh, uh, the investigation could have been wrapped up a very long time ago. But it's, it's tough, and these people are very good at it. They've had a lot of experience. Uh, the Arkansas uh, time was a, was a great preparation. It was sort of like the, uh, the minor leagues, the farm team for the, for the big time. And uh, if you've made a career out of dissembling and deceiving and destroying and denying, uh, you've gotten a lot of experience that you can use uh, with good effect uh, at the national level. And that's what this administration, in my judgment, is doing, and quite effectively. Cal Thomas pulled that clip to talk to you about impeachment. Mm -hmm. President Clinton was impeached by the House of Representatives. The country had gone 132 years since the last and only impeachment, and we've now seen three mm -hmm. in 20 years. Why? It's payback time, and that's one of the things that, uh, unless you're on the extremes, that people are fed up with. Again, this doesn't improve any life, doesn't educate a child. And when the Republicans did that to Clinton, you knew the Democrats were gonna get their chance and they did the same thing to Trump twice. And now we're hearing even talk that uh, Biden could be impeached. Well, that's not gonna go anywhere with a Democrat Senate. Uh, and it's just crazy. I mean, who's gonna stand up and say enough of this stupidity Let's get on with solving the business of the American people, which has nothing to do with your careers, okay? We hired you to serve us. We're not serving you. That's the difference. The Constitution begins, we the people, not you the government. So 2000 election and the arrival of George W. Bush. First question I have for you, what was the impact on the Supreme Court of their intervention in the 2000 election outcome? Well, I think for some, it uh, deepened the cynicism. You remember hanging chads and, uh, and the Secretary of State of Florida finally uh, declaring 
that Bush was the winner in that state. Now, I will say to the great credit of Al Gore, uh, Bush's appoint, opponent, he did not contest the election. He did not say it was stolen, much like Nixon in 1960 against Kennedy, when he could have had a legitimate reason for claiming that that election was stolen due to uh, Kennedy's father and some of the things he did in Cook County, Illinois, and in West Virginia, Al Gore went quietly and said, for the sake of the country, I concede to my opponent. That is not gonna happen probably again in my lifetime and maybe for another lifetime or two. Things are so close now. Uh, you have just a very few states uh, based on their electoral votes that decide any election. And uh, now with AI and with the Democrats, especially targeting young people, you saw what happened recently in Wisconsin with a Supreme Court race up there where they flipped from a pro-life uh, state Supreme Court, uh, or from a, yeah, from a pro-life to a pro-choice state Supreme Court. They made great use of targeting young people who hadn't voted before. I think you're gonna see more of that. 9-11, so how do you look at that moment in history and what its impact has been on the country and the world? I was living in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, at the time, and I'm working on my computer, and my wife said, quick, turn on the TV. I turned it on and watched with the rest of America as those planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York, and then the one in the Pentagon just down the road from where I was living. Uh, I think uh, I wrote 10 columns in a row on the, on the thing, I think more than any other subject I've ever written about in, in a row. And uh, it was frightening. We felt vulnerable. Uh, we couldn't fly anywhere commercially. I heard uh, military jets going up and down the Potomac River uh, near my house. Um, and when Bush went up to New York and somebody in the crowd yelled, we can't hear you. And he said, well, I hear you. And pretty soon they're gonna hear us. That was an amazing moment. And I think it was a rare moment when the country united behind the president of the United States uh, as one. We haven't seen that since. And we can argue about whether we stayed too long in Afghanistan or not. I think we did. Um, and we can argue about whether we withdrew precipitously. And I think we did. Trump's line was, well, I was going to withdraw too, but I was going to withdraw um, in a more orderly fashion and wouldn't have left all the military equipment behind. But I think it, it shows that, uh, you know, we, we are still vulnerable. There are people who want to destroy us. And we better stop destroying ourselves from within. We got plenty of enemies from without. You uh, mentioned the Afghanistan war, but you haven't mentioned, but you do write about the Iraq war. What do you think of the decision to go into Iraq? It was, uh, in retrospect, a bad decision. It was bad intelligence. I mean, when Colin Powell went to the UN and showed these pictures and claimed that they showed that uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, that was the rationale. Tony Blair, the prime minister of the UK, uh, was operating on the same intelligence and, and saying the same thing. Uh, but it was bad, it was wrong. And is it good that Saddam Hussein is gone? Probably. Is the way we got rid of him, uh, was that the best way? Probably not. No weapons of mass destruction were found. And, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of people, that, what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, want to keep getting us into wars because it, it feeds their power and uh, the defense industry and their weapons, uh, selling not only to our government, but also to governments around the world. Uh, so I think we need to be more careful, and I think we need to have Congress more involved, uh, which the Constitution says only the Congress can declare war. We've had these conflicts. Korea was a conflict. Uh, Vietnam was a conflict. There was no declared war in any of these, and I think we need to have limits on what one person can do to commit the United States 
and our uh, men and women uh, to give their lives and or be injured uh, before we get into these affairs. We need to think them through. At the end of the Bush years, we had the 2007-8 uh, financial crisis and the accompanying bailout packages. This is our third clip. This is you in February 26, 2009, as the big economic stimulus package was being debated in this town. The American dream is being borrowed. This is not taxpayers' money. This is being borrowed from other countries, mainly China, possibly Saudi Arabia. We are so in debt now to other countries. What this, this economic stimulus plan is all about, there's an old song, I think it was in the 70s, uh, let the devil take tomorrow, help me make it through the night. That is what this plan is about. Never mind tomorrow. You know, the tax increases aren't going to come until 2011. And uh, that'll be after uh, the uh, next election, and you won't actually pay them until 2012. So yes, there's a lot of stuff going on out there, but it's on borrowed money. A familiar song for you. Yes, well, I keep getting older in these clips, but at least I got rid of the mustache. Uh, it turned out that the, uh, you know, the stimulus worked uh, to a point, but like the uh, saving of the auto industry, which at least the money got paid back, you know, what we are doing, and we've seen this recently with the Silicon Valley Bank and some others, we are rewarding bad behavior. Failure is not a bad thing if it leads to good behavior. I've been fired, I have failed in some areas, and I've always learned from the, those lessons. But uh, if, if you know that you can get bailed out, whether it be by the FDIC or some other uh, government agency for doing bad loans, uh, uh, giving mortgages to people who can't afford them. Look at this recent proposal from the Biden administration. President wants to uh, subsidize people with bad credit by raising the mortgage rates for people with good credit. Now, what in the world is that all about? I thought you used to penalize bad behavior in order to get good behavior and rewarded good behavior to get more of it. Now we seem to have flipped that. Of Barack Obama, you write, I allowed my joy at the possibilities of seeing a black man elected president to overcome my natural skepticism that a liberal Democrat would change his spots. You also say Barack Obama would prove to be a very divisive president. I met him once. Uh, he has a tremendous personality. And, uh, and I, am, I was proud and still remain proud that this nation with its history of slavery and discrimination and Jim Crow and the rest could elect a man uh, with skin color darker than, uh, than white people. And I said so at the time. I grew up in segregated Washington. I went to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech when I was a copy boy at NBC. I was dragged along by a reporter. Uh, I never really met a, a black person other than the maid my parents employed until I started playing basketball and showered with them and went to their homes and had dinner with them. I remember the late Jack Kemp, the congressman from New York and later HUD secretary said he had showered with more black men than existed in the Republican Party at the time. It was a great line, but he had credibility with them because not only did he play football with them and shower with them, but he went to their communities and he talked their language and he really had a heart. He used to call himself a, uh, a, uh, uh, that, a, a, a bleeding heart conservative. And that was a great line. But he wanted to make their lives better, not just to subsidize them uh, in their poverty. And I think uh, President Obama missed a tremendous opportunity. I think I referred to him once as a potential Moses leading a poor minority people out of their failing government schools, out of their housing projects, and giving them new hope for a brighter future. 
Uh, that, I think, is the tragedy of his eight years in office, that he did not do that. Our time is evaporating. We have about 10 minutes left, so I'm going to fast forward to uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and you write that you initially opposed his candidacy. Mm -hmm. How did you come around to supporting him? Well, I made a bargain with the devil. Uh, you know, uh, I said, okay, I'm going to ignore all of the character qualities and I'm going to focus on the policies. And his policies were good for the most part, whether it was the border or taxes, government regulations. But I think in the end, his personality and his character overcame those things. And we want or expect or hope for certain things in our political leadership, certainly in the presidency. And uh, while we allow certainly uh, certain moral failings in some areas, I think uh, uh, we'd never had a divorced uh, president or a president who was married to somebody who had been divorced until uh, Gerald Ford and Betty Ford. And then, you know, Reagan, of course, had been divorced, and uh, then we kind of tolerated Clinton because, as James Carville said, it's only sex. And, uh, and now we've gotten to a point where here is Trump on, what, wife number three or four, I lost count, and all of these uh, accusations made against him. And I just think that at, at a certain point, character overcomes everything else, and I'm certainly not supporting him in the next election. I hope somebody younger and with uh, better character qualities uh, gets the nomination. I how, believe they will. How responsible is he for January 6th? You know, it, people are responsible for their own behavior. I mean, there are, uh, every time you see something on television that uh, represents violence or uh, severe criticism of somebody else, that doesn't justify your going out and uh, doing harm to other people and their property or trying to uh, reverse an election. So that's going to be a matter, for, I think, for the special counsel to determine. But uh, those people on January 6th, uh, not all of whom, by the way, rioted. There were a number out there exercising their First Amendment rights to peaceably assemble and to address their government for redress of their grievances. So uh, the ones that did uh, invade the Capitol and the ones that did destroy property uh, deserved to be held accountable. But whether Trump himself uh, incited that riot is, uh, is a matter now for the special counsel to determine. How do you process his handling of the COVID epidemic? I think he listened too much to uh, Dr. Fauci. I think uh, shutting down everything was the wrong thing to do. Uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida had a different plan and it worked out much better and he has touted that. Uh, and then he was all over the place. He had this hydroxychloroquine hydro or whatever it was and uh, all of these uh, you know, bathtub gin type of remedies talking about. And again, it, it was more about his personality than, than other things. I think shutting down the country was a very bad thing. You criticized Barack Obama for excessive use of executive orders, but his two successors continue to deploy them. You know, uh, Mark Levin uh, did a show the other night on Fox where he, he went through Article One of the Constitution and talked about the limitations of a president. The founders wrote all this stuff and they wanted government and political power to be limited so the American people would be unlimited. And uh, e these executive orders have no constitutional basis. They're not going through Congress. They're not being approved by the uh, people's elective representatives. And I think it's a very dangerous precedent. And you're gonna see more of this if it's allowed to continue. I wish a, a case would come before the Supreme Court and they could decide this because you're gonna get 
what, what, how, how many? I think it was close to 100 executive orders that Biden did when he first came into office. Now, if a Republican gets elected, they're going to reverse all those executive orders and they're going to issue their own executive orders. Then the next election of a Democrat gets elected. It's the same thing all over again. It's like watching a tennis match. The ball's going back and forth. That's nuts. That's not orderly government. Earlier, you referenced Donald Trump's three appointees to the Supreme Court. We now have a conservative majority. What are your expectations of it? Well, of course, some of my, my best expectation was the Dobbs decision, which I think if you read the decision, uh, along with uh, those who agreed with it on the court, you're going to find that uh, uh, the legal analysis, the legal argument, that Roe was wrongly decided, something even Lawrence Tribe, who favored the outcome, the Harvard professor, uh, agreed was wrongly decided, you're going to find the, uh, the logic uh, very, very good. I'm hoping that uh, more cases on uh, uh, religious freedom, on, uh, uh, on uh, you know, tariffs maybe, and some other things uh, will, uh, will be decided. But I think these justices are, 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 are men and women of, uh, of strong character. I'm appalled at the demonstrations outside of their homes and uh, the death threats that they're getting. I think this shows, once again, that the political left in this country has been using the courts to get through things they could never get through Congress. We have uh, five minutes left. We are two years into the Biden administration, someone that you've had 40 years of observations. How is he governing versus the man that you watched as a public official all those years? Well, I'm very sad for him. I really am because it's very clear that uh, he is in decline. He can't put a simple sentence together. Of course, neither can Kamala Harris, but that's another issue. And uh, he's confused most of the time. He hasn't done a press conference, a real press conference in some time. He did an interview the other day with MSNBC and a White House staffer interrupted the interview because she didn't want the, him to answer the question that was asked. In all of my time in Washington and observing presidents, I've never seen that happen. And you know, his wife, uh, Dr. Joe Biden, guides him around places. He's confused about where he goes. I don't think he's going to be the nominee. I mean, you've seen the r recent Washington Post uh, ABC poll, I think it was, that shows him uh, seven points behind Trump. Uh, it, that could be an outlier, but it's following a pattern where even Democrats, 58% of Democrats, according to that poll, want somebody else. They're afraid. And uh, a lot of Republicans don't want Donald Trump either. So it's going to give me plenty to write about for the next year and a half. Well, what about his record on his policy so far? You mean uh, Biden. Uh, President Biden? Well, I, you know, he campaigned as a uniter and a, a moderate, but he has governed like the most extreme liberal. Uh, raising taxes, uh, mandates about now washing machines. Uh, we're we're, we're going to have less water in our washing machines, which means we'll probably have to wash two cycles instead of one, uh, which will use just as much, if not more, water. Uh, regulating, trying to force electric cars on the public that doesn't want it. That's clear because Elon Musk has uh, dropped the price of Tesla, I think, three times now. People just aren't buying it. And I think a lot of his policies are based on philosophy more than, than actually what works. And I think that's dangerous for the country. Big issue, but uh, as we close out here, we are experiencing almost a weekly mass shooting in this mm. country. What is the remedy if there is one? Well, I think it's an example that uh, evil is, uh, is reigning in the land. And I see a connection between abortion and uh, the loss of human life in our cities. When you disrespect life at one level, you're going to disrespect it at other levels as well. Uh, it's, it's a tragedy because 
Most of the victims and most of the perpetrators are minorities. Uh, it's a tragedy because the police are being defunded. Many police officers are leaving the forces because they're not supported anymore by the politicians. And uh, when you have a vacuum, the only thing I learned in physics before I flunked table of contents is that nature abhors a vacuum. There's always something ready to rush in to fill the vacuum. And if you have a vacuum created by politicians who will not uphold the law, if you have a vacuum created that uh, there's no accountability for breaking the law or very little accountability, uh, and people can uh, not even go to prison but get right back out on the streets and commit new crimes, you're going to have anarchy in this country. And that's what we're seeing in city after city. Cal Thomas's a new book is called A Watchman in the Night. You referenced lots to write about over the next couple of years, so that you're not intending this to be your swan song. Well, I hope not. No, I have a title for another book. I don't think I'll write it, but I love the title. Press one for English. <laughs> well, thanks very much for being with us for the last hour. And uh, your book is available wherever people buy books. And who's the publisher? It's uh, HumanX, which is a division of Newsmax. Uh, and uh, I don't know if it's available. You know, a lot of stores don't carry my books. They put one in the religion section uh, some years ago, back next to the uh, Zen and Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I said, this is not a religious book. Put it in the cookbook section. It's not a cookbook either, but it'll get more coverage. Thanks again <laughs> Thank for your you, time. Thank you, Susan. Appreciate it. Cal okay. Thomas, longtime syndicated columnist and author of several books. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 